All right, Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3. We've been in Romans now for a long time, probably another couple of years to go before we ever get done with this book, but it's a, comp- it's a difficult book, but one we've, we've kind of gotten through some of the most difficult sections. Chapter 2 is extremely difficult because chapter 2 brought up which problem? That we are justified by faith, but judged according to our works. And we worked out all the different ways to possibly resolve that conflict And we looked at that. Now we come to chapter 3. I'm going to do some review in chapter 3, and then we're going to move uh, right in. But let's just kind of some basic information of chapter 3. Chapter 3 forms a bridge between two sections. Section 1, which we start in chapter 1, starting in around verse 18 and following, really emphasizes sin. All right? Once we get past chapter 3, we move into a discussion about salvation. So chapter 3 is kind of a bridge between the section dealing with sin and the section dealing with salvation. Chapter 3 has been described by some as kind of the seedbed for the rest of the book. Once I get to Romans chapter 3 and I start reading, I'm going to see things discussed in chapter 3 that's going to show up in the rest of the book of Romans. So that tells me that we need not, well, I mean, we're never in a hurry when we go through a book, correct? I mean... We can spend six months on one verse, but we need to be extremely careful not to move through chapter three too quick, because if we move through chapter three too quick, we're going to just, we're going to end up running into the same subjects later. So we need to establish our understanding in chapter three as we need to really get it down, because if we don't, we're going to just have to be repeating some of these same ideas and some of these same concepts. To give you an example... If you look at Romans chapter 3, if you have a Bible, open it up. Romans chapter 3. Okay. If you look at uh, Romans chapter 3, starting in verse 1. What advantage then hath the Jew, or what profit is there of circumcision? Much every way, chiefly because that unto them were committed the oracles of God. So he begins by asking a question, hey, what what benefit is, is it to be a Jew, what benefit is there in circumcision? He tells them there is a benefit, but here, here's what happens. Verse 3, for what if some did not believe? And the some there is referring to Israel. We'll, we'll get into this verse in, in more detail. Shall their unbelief make the faith of God without effect? Verse 3 brings up the subject of Israel's unbelief, which will, will turn to a major discussion of Israel's unbelief in chapter 9 through chapter 11 of the book of Romans. So chapter 3 is going to plant the seed. Chapter 9 through 11, we'll see that seed turn into a full-blown discussion and a theology of how to interpret Israel's unbelief because throughout church history, there's two very different ways to interpret their unbelief, and we will obviously get into that. If you look at chapter 3, verse 8, Romans chapter 3, verse 8, and not rather, as we by slanderously reported... As, as some affirm that we say, let us do evil that good may come, whose damnation is just. Now there, again, I'm just mentioning these verses, begins to talk about this idea of living in sin. Hey, should you live in sin because, hey, God's grace will abound, should you do so? Well, chapter 6 through 8 of the book of Romans will take that subject and go into a full-blown discussion. The seed is planted in chapter 3. Chapter 3, verse 21, 
we read what? But now the righteousness of God without the law is manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. All right, what is uh, manifested without the law? Righteousness. This is going to get into a discussion of justification, how we are justified, and about imputed righteousness. We're going to see a discussion of that in Romans chapter 4 through 5. Romans chapter 3, verse 21, simply plants the seed. Romans 3, 31, talks about establishing the law, right? Or Romans 3, 31, I should say. Uh, Do we then make void the law through the faith? God forbid, yea, we establish the law. Well, there's going to be a lengthy discussion about the law in chapters 12 through 16 of the book of Romans. Chapter 3, verse 31, simply plants the seed. All right, that's all review. All right, now, we discussed last week that in Romans chapter 3, verses 1 through 20, there are four questions asked. Four questions asked in Romans chapter 3, verses 1 through 20. Does everybody remember those four questions? Okay, Sarah's not here. All, the, all my reviewers are not here, so y'all are going to have to step up. What was question number one? What advantage is there to being a Jew? What advantage is there being a Jew? And where is that question found? In verse 1. Everybody see it? We just read it a minute ago. We'll read it again. Repetition is always good. What advantage then hath the Jew? See how complicated my outlines are, right? Where does it go? It comes from the text, right? What advantage is then uh, hath the Jew or what profit is there of circumcision? That's the question. What's the answer? Well, they're much every way. They do have an advantage, a great advantage. What was their advantage according to verse 2? They were entrusted oracles of God. Stephen probably is using the NIV, the words of God. They were entrusted the words of God. The Jews were given the words of God. And how were they given the words of God? They were given the words of God through, obviously, the Ten Commandments that were given to them and through the words of the prophets. And, of course, the Old Testament was written to them. So they were entrusted with the oracles of God. That's an advantage. But that advantage also gave them what? A responsibility. We just spent an hour in Sunday school talking about that, right? They were given a responsibility. So they did have an advantage. However, what's the next question that's asked? Verse 3, for what if some did not believe? Okay, they were given all these advantages, but what would happen if some did not believe? Well, we know that that's what occurred throughout all of the Old Testament history. Israel were given all these advantages, and how did they constantly respond to those advantages? Unbelief, unbelief, unbelief. So what, so what if, They did not believe, and then here's the real question here that they want us to understand. What if they did not believe? Shall their unbelief make the faith of God without effect? Or another way of translating that, where their unbelief basically get rid of God's faithfulness? And the answer is, look at verse 4, God forbid... Yea, let God be true, but every man a liar. All right? No, God forbid. His faithfulness is not impacted by our unfaithfulness, or in this particular case, it's a specific reference to the Jews. All right? 
Now, let me just remind you, I don't want to get off track here because we want to make it through these four questions because we've, we've got a major section to deal with this morning, all right? But let me just remind you, this verse in Romans 3 about will, will, will the Jews' unbelief get rid of God's faithfulness? And the answer is, God forbid, this is a critical verse in the subject of eschatology. And what is eschatology? Study of end times, all right? Now, remember, there are two views throughout church history, right? One view is called replacement theology, sometimes known as amillennialism. And this is the idea Israel was what? Unfaithful, and God did what? Replace them. With whom? Us. The church. Okay? We get what? All the promises, all the blessings, and they get what? All the curses. That's called replacement theology. Millennialism has part of that. I'm not going to get into all the history. We've, we've studied the history of that countless times here. The second view is, no, 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 no. God is upset with Israel. Yes, they have been set aside for a period of time, and that is the time of the Gentiles. And at the conclusion of that time, God will then return back to Israel and bring them to salvation. That is more of sometimes known as the dispensational view or the modern evangelical view. Now, historically, that's not what the church believed. The early church fathers would not have even understood that. Why? Why did the early church fathers not know anything about this this dispensational kind of view? Israel didn't exist. Wasn't a nation. So they're like, well, God's done with Israel. And then we all know, 1948, Israel becomes a nation. Now, some people before 1948, to be fair, Darby, some other theologians came out and said, wait, I don't think God is done with Israel. And they started making some of those teachings before 1948. And that's pretty impressive that they kind of like, wait, I, think, I don't think God is done here. So those are two views. This verse is critical because this verse seems to imply that God is not done. All right? Now that's important. If God is not done, this is good news for the Jews, but it's good news for you and I because are you always faithful? Okay, well, the visitor is very honest, okay? <laughs> Thank you very much. That, yes, none of us are. Everyone here can admit that just with the same enthusiasm. We are all unfaithful. Every single one in this room is unfaithful, and we need to acknowledge that. Good news is, God is. God is. And we see that, and that's why it's... Studying Israel is such an important concept because we see what happens. Unfaithful, God is faithful. Unfaithful, God is faithful. Unfaithful, God is faithful. Unfaithful, God is faithful. If we say God is done with Israel, that should be troubling to you. Because then God can be done with you. And that would be... So so just make sure that verse... and, and Roman, make sure you understand this. In Romans 3, Paul's not trying to get into a theological discussion about these questions. He's just throwing out the question. He's planting the seed for a deeper discussion that will happen in Romans chapter 9, Romans chapter 10, and Romans chapter 11. All right, so everybody got that? All right, that's question number two. What was question number three?
All right? Let's look at verse 5. But if our unrighteousness commanded the righteousness of God, what shall we say? Is God unrighteous who taketh vengeance? I speak as a man. All right? Let me, put, let me rephrase the question where you can understand it. If our unrighteousness shows God's righteousness, then isn't it unfair for him to punish us? Right? We're unfaithful, we're unrighteous, but if it demonstrates God's righteousness, then why should he punish me? I'm doing a good thing, right? It, it almost is, he's, he's asking the question because he, he's, he's anticipating arguments against his theology. Now, Paul loves to do that. He knows where he's going and he asks the question before someone can raise an objection. And he's going to make the argument that, uh, that, God's, that God's righteousness is shown even though you're unrighteous. And because you're unrighteous, God's righteousness is even more glorified. Well, then someone's going to say, okay, well, why can't I just continue to do wrong? So it's like arguing with a teenager, right? Okay? Like they, want, they want an excuse. And what does he say? What's his answer to that question? God forbid, for then how shall God judge the world? Now, verse 6, if you don't realize what he's doing here, he's borrowing from Genesis. He's borrowing from Genesis, where we're told, I believe it's Genesis 18.25, where we're told that God is the judge of the world. God will judge the world. Well, if God's going to judge the world, you can't then make an argument that God shouldn't judge you because your unrighteousness brings out God's righteousness. He's going to judge the world. Now, you may not think it's fair. You may not think it's logical. It's irrelevant. Paul, a lot of times Paul does this. He doesn't necessarily explain why it makes sense. He just tells you the way it is. And sometimes as Christians, we have to understand, sometimes the scriptures don't explain why something is. It just explains that something is. And then our job is to accept that. So that's, he makes a pretty bold statement right there. Agreed? God, God's going to judge the world. Doesn't matter if you feel like it's unfair or not. God is going to judge the world. Period. We don't, ha- we don't have to like it, but that's the way it's going to be. All right? Everybody got that? All right. Now, that brings us to the fourth question. All right. Now, here is where fourth question serves as a transition. This is, now we're really going to dig in. This is where we're going to spend the rest of the time this morning, all right? Any questions about those first three, those first three questions? Everybody understands them? Pretty straightforward? No confusion? All right. Now, before we get to this fourth question, let's go ahead and, and, and I wish we could have just started with the fourth question because then I could have done a, a proper introduction, but I'm going to introduce this now because this is very critical. As Christians... Our perspective on human nature and what makes us as people, what we really are, is radically different than the way the world views people and what we're made of and how we are. This is true. Um, Education approaches it from uh, their perspective of what a human is and what they're made up of. Um, Psychology, same thing. They have a separate approach. Christianity has a very radical approach to human nature, very radically different. And, and sometimes within modern Christendom, 
they have forgotten what our teaching of what we believe human nature is. We have a, we've been greatly influenced by the culture. Greatly influenced by the culture. You'll even hear Christians make this argument of, you know, follow your heart. Listen to your heart. Right? Which is radically not historical Christianity. That's Disney movies. That's not historical Christianity. This question is going to lead us into this discussion. And it's... It, <laughs> There's not going to be any good news um, in this message. This is going to be very negative news because he's about to really unload on the whole world. All right? In chapter 1, he tried to talk, we think, in chapter 1, starting in verse 18 and following, he's definitely emphasizing the Gentiles, their rejection of natural revelation. Chapter 2, he goes after the Jews, and he's still going after the Jews, correct? Right? Now, what he's going to do in verse 9 is say this. Here's the question. Fourth question. Everybody ready? What then? Are we better than they? All right. Who is the we? Jews. Who is the they? Gentiles. All right. Because Paul is a Jew. So he's placing himself in that we category. Right. Are we better than they? Now, In chapter 1, by the time we get to the end of chapter 1, there would have been a lot of people saying amen because at the end of chapter 1, he says that the people who do such things are worthy of death. And there would have been a lot of people going, that's right, they deserve death, they're ungodly. And he's gone to chapter 2 to say, hey, slow down. You think you're so good? You're not. And now what does he say? Are we better than they? No, in no wise, for we have before proved both Jews and Gentiles, that they are all under sin. The key word there is what? All. You can circle that. All is the key word. All. The the answer is simple. The question is simple. The answer is, are we better than they? No. Now, we can, we can, let's take, let's just make this applicable this morning because we're, we're getting ready to get into a very serious theological discussion here, but let's make it very applicable. Paul is writing to righteous Jews who are looking at those horrible Gentiles thinking they deserve to die. And he's just now basically exploded their theology and made them realize they are guilty too. We must remember as we sit here in a church that we at the same times, because we are believers and we are hopefully trying to serve and follow God and grow in our faith, that sometimes we think that we are better than they. And we're not better than they. We're simply saved by God's grace and God's mercy. Now we want to live a godly life and sometimes we may be living a more godly life externally, but internally We have a depravity that is present. And that's what he's getting ready to expose. Because he almost knows that someone's going to argue, well, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. We're not that bad. We're not that bad. Someone is going to hear him say this and say, well, wait a minute, come on, Paul. Do you know some of these Gentiles? Have you looked at what's going on in Rome? Come on, we've got to be better than that. And he reminds them that they're all under sin. And then in verse 10 and following, this is the section of sections of Scripture. Verse 10 and following may be the most important theological section in Romans because it establishes, everybody ready for the theological term? It establishes the doctrine of total 
depravity. It's going to establish the doctrine of total depravity. Now, many Christians claim to believe in total depravity and then demonstrate they don't believe in total depravity when it comes to how they believe about certain issues. Total depravity is a doctrine. Now, we can go back to church history. Who was, who was the main one who rejected total depravity in church history? Pelagius, right? Pelagius rejected it. Who did he have his fight with? Okay, look at that. I know your church history. See, y'all, can, y'all looking smart, see? I'm asking you easy church uh, history questions, right? Okay, so um, that, they had their dispute. That, did that dispute stop once the uh, early church condemned Pelagius? No, it did not. When did it show back up? Canons of Dort. Remember the Synod of Dort when they met? And who did they condemn? The followers of Pelagius, right? Pelagianism was alive and well. And so what, what has pretty much taken over the American church? Not Pelagianism, semi-Pelagianism, which is alive and well in the American church. This chapter condemns semi-Pelagianism because it believes and teaches the total depravity of us all. All right, so are you ready to really find out what you are? Okay, you may think you're really good. Sad to say you're getting ready to find out you're not. Okay, you're getting ready to find out how bad you really are and you're not gonna like it, but this is the text that is before us this morning, all right? Going verse by verse, we, this is how we have to do it, all right? Are you ready? Verse 10, there's a key phrase in verse 10. What is the key phrase? As it is written. Very good. Very good. Why is that a key phrase? What is, it, what is he going, what is he, what are we getting ready to have established for us? Yes, what he wants to do is he wants them to make sure they understand that Paul is not coming with a new teaching on human nature. He's not coming with a new theology. He's going to establish what had already been previously written. As it is written, what is he going to quote from? Does anybody know where he's quoting from? Psalm, right? What Psalm? Chapter 14. We'll read what he says here. As it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. But let's stop there. He's quoting from Psalm 14. Now, he's kind of paraphrasing Psalm 14 a little bit, and we could get into a whole discussion about how this works, but that's not the goal here. Let's go back to Psalm 14 and see exactly what he has to say here. All right. And if you have a King James, uh, this is a this may be a, this is a time where the King James is very helpful. All right, Psalm chapter 14. He's going to quote verses one through three. All right. Everybody ready? Now we're going to break this down. And we're going to, remember, what, I'm going to make sure we're on the same page. Paul wants to establish the doctrine of total depravity, correct? Yes, okay. Now, we're going to see how this works, and I think you'll get the idea. Here's Psalm chapter 14, verse 1. This verse is often quoted by many uh, to go after atheists, uh, but uh, Paul's not using it after atheists, is he? He's using it after all of us, all right? And you'll see why in a minute. The fool hath said in his heart, there is no God. 
Please note, if you're using a King James, there's a word in the in italics. What does that mean when there's a word in italics in the King James? The word was added by the translators. It's not in the uh, manuscripts that we have. There's no manuscript support. Why would the uh, translators add a word? To try to make it a sentence, to try to give it some structure. Because sometimes if you're going from, and this is true of any language, if you're translating from one language to another, sometimes you, you bring it over. And if you were to give a literal translation of, say, what someone said in Spanish, it would be all kind of, and German, same way, right? You know, okay? If you, if you say, a, a, if I was to say a statement in, in, in German, and you translated it just completely word for word, it would probably be kind of broken, missing some things. Okay. All right, same thing happens in Hebrew, same thing happens in Greek, happens in any language. So this is how it would literally read. The fool has said in his heart, no God. The fool has said in his heart, no God. Now this is brilliant that Paul is going to use Psalm 14. Why is it so brilliant? Remember in Romans chapter 1, the whole argument about what happens? God has revealed himself. Where has he revealed himself? In nature. Right? And what did people do in Romans 1? Suppressed, pushed down that knowledge that there is a God, and they said, no God. No God. And because they say there is no God, that is the state of the human heart. Where, where does the fool say it in Psalm 14:1? In his heart. This is not even an academic rejection. This is an internal rejection. Inside of us is a no God position, right? There's a, there's almost like a, there's a, there's a protest going on inside of your heart. And your heart says, no God. Because what does your, who does your heart want to be God? Yourself. And this is literally inside of every person. Now, we know that there is a God because it's revealed in nature. There's God's laws written on our heart. But Romans 1 says, what do we do with all of that information? Suppress it. Don't want it. Don't want it. It's like a child when the parent's trying to talk to a child and they're like, no, 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 Right? That's what we do to God revealing himself to us. No God. No God. No God, and because we reject God, we establish ourselves as being that God. He wants us to start right here, and this is very important. This is the way I wrote it down. In Psalm chapter 14, verse 1, he begins to establish the problem of the human heart. What does Jeremiah say about the human heart? Desperately wicked and deceitful above all things. What is the most deceitful thing on the planet? Not a politician. They're close. Okay? Your own heart. That's why we don't listen to our heart. That's a bad thing to do. Right? Our heart's messed up. David realized that. Remember after David's horrible sin? Right? And he confesses it to God in Psalm 51. What does he ask God for? Created me because he knows where's his problem internally. Now, I want you to realize if we establish that your heart, my heart is corrupt, it is deceitful above all things, it is desperately wicked, and my heart says, What? 
No God. Now remember, we typically go to Psalm 14.1 and we apply it to the fool. I had the fool, the atheist. The atheist is a fool. The atheist is a fool. The atheist is a fool. Okay, I understand that. This is not an academic argument that it's in their mind. This is a heart. And Paul comes along and he applies it to whom? Go back to Romans 3. Everyone, yes, this is very critical in this. As it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is no under, he is borrowing from Psalm 14.1 and he's taking what's in Psalm 14.1 and he's restating it. Right? Does that make sense? He's restating it. We go back to Psalm 14, and Psalm 14 reminds us that in the heart, there no God. That's, that's the cry of the human heart. No God. No God except for one. All right? No God except for one, and that one is ourselves. That's the, here's the thing. Christianity, when one becomes a Christian, this is, this is what Christianity is at its most simplistic form. Christianity at its most simplistic form is rejecting the God of self for the true God. Christianity at its essence is rejecting the God of self for the true God. And you think that that's easy, but it's not easy. Because after you become a Christian, what continues to try to rise up and fight against you? Self. Self is the greatest enemy to Christianity. Right? I know we talk about the world, the flesh, and the devil, but the devil is not omnipresent, so he can't be in all places at all times. So he, he utilizes the world system. And what does the world system apply to, uh, appeal to? Self. And there's the problem. There's the problem. Okay? All right. So let's, let's continue here. The fool have said in his heart, no God. They are corrupt and they have done abominable works. There is... None that doeth good. The Lord looked down from heaven upon the children of men to see if there were any that did understand and seek God. Now, now he goes, remember Psalm 14, we usually leave at the atheist doorstep, but immediately the psalmist applies it to whom? Look at verse 2, the Lord looked down from heaven upon the children of, that's all of us. And what does he discover? So let's go through this. The heart is mentioned in verse 1, is it not? What is mentioned in verse 2? Or uh, no, uh, in, in verse 1, part A, the heart is mentioned. In verse 1, part B, what else is mentioned? Our works are our actions. Our heart is messed up. And our, because our heart is messed up, what flows from a messed up heart? Abominable works or actions. Right? Make, make sure this is very important. I know this church knows this because we've, we've studied theology enough here, but I want to make this very clear because, um, you know, on uh, all of our podcasts, I remember uh, when uh, we did uh, interviews at a, 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 a situation in New Mexico, there was a big a famous pastor preaching and we were doing interviews of people coming out of, out of that event and we asked them a simple question and the number of Christians who got it wrong was somewhat st- staggering, so I want to make sure everyone here gets it right. Make this very clear, and you all know what I'm going to say. We do not become a sinner by sinning. We sin because we are a sinner. What comes forth? What comes first? The action or the reality? The nature comes first. I did not become a sinner by sinning. 
I sinned because I was a sinner by what? Nature, by birth. Remember what did David confess? I was conceived in sin. He's not speaking that his mom did some kind of sin, that he was a sin from the womb. What I, I always refer to babies as? Vipers and diapers, right? Depraved sinners. What, do you have to teach a kid to lie? Do you have to teach a kid to be selfish? No, why? Because what are we by nature? Sinful. That is our nature. The heart is sinful, and that comes from the, then the actions flow from it. I did not become a sinner by sinning. I sinned because I was a sinner by nature. That's the doctrine of total depravity, that we are depraved from our very nature. Mommy sinner and daddy sinner produces baby sinner. That's what we just celebrated. I mean, we were here on Christmas night, right? We celebrated the incarnation, What is one of the key teachings of the incarnation of Christ? Born of a virgin, right? Conceived by the Holy Spirit, reciting the classic creeds of Christendom. Why do we believe in the virgin birth so much? Because Jesus could not inherit a sinful nature. That's why the virgin birth isn't just some cool idea because, oh, it's a cool story. It's theological. Now that led... That led Catholicism to teach the Immaculate Conception, which is not about Jesus, which is about Mary, that Mary was conceived without sin because they were like, how do we work this out? But the virgin birth is the only answer that we have. Why does Jesus not have a sinful nature? Born of a virgin, conceived by the Holy Spirit. That's the only answer that we have, right? But we don't have that luxury. We're born with a heart that says what? No God. And what flows from that heart that says no God? Sinful actions, right? And then, so it goes from the heart, it goes to the action, and then where else does it go? Look at the end of verse two. Verse two, part B. He looked down from heaven to see if there were any that did understand and seek God. And what does he find? He doesn't find any that understand or any that seek God. No one seeks God. I know this is a radical thought in American Christianity. We don't seek God. God has to seek us. Remember the parables in Luke that Jesus told, right? About the shepherd leaving the sheep to go find, right? He came to seek and to save that which was lost. He came to seek. He came to save. We don't seek God. God seeks us. Now, I know this gets into a major theological dilemma, dispute, but we're not going to get into that dispute. It's just a biblical argument. We're depraved sinners. God has to seek us because what does it say? Look at verse three. They're all gone aside. They're all together become filthy. There is none that doeth good. No, not one. So where does depravity go? Let's, Let's look at it. It goes from the heart goes to the actions, goes to the mind, and it goes to the will. Now, I know this is, I hate to say, it's so weird that this is a radical thought in 2019 American Christianity, but it's not a radical thought in historical Christianity. We are depraved. Where does the depravity go? Let's make sure we get this. Where does it go? Heart, actions, mind, 
and will. Now, when you say the will, people lose their minds and they get all upset, but the human will has to be impacted by it. Remember, this was the argument from, about Pelagius and Augustine. Remember, that's why we studied, when we started Romans, what did we study? The canons of Dort. Why did I want us to go back and study that historical document? Because this is the battle that they had in the early church. Is the will impacted? Well, the will has to be impacted because where is our will located? And what is our heart? Deceitful above all things, desperately wicked. What does our heart say? No God. So guess what's going to be impacted? My will. That's why I don't seek God. What, is, what else is impacted? My mind. That's why I don't understand. So what is required for salvation? God is required to seek and to save. Right? Now that we get into a lot of other issues there, but we won't at this point. He goes to Psalm 14. Now go back to Romans 3. Again, he uses, he doesn't give it an exact quotation, but he's borrowing from it. Now why is he borrowing from it? Because he wants them to realize this is not a new teaching. It's not a new teaching. And it's not a new teaching by me. I'm, not, I'm teaching things that have been taught throughout church history. Y'all know this because we've talked about it. So now let's go to Romans chapter 3, verse 10. Everybody there? Okay, here we go. As it is written, that's borrowing from Psalm 14, there is none righteous, no, not one. Now let's make sure we understand this because this sometimes leads to some confusion amongst Christians. Have you ever known people who do quote-unquote righteous or good works? Yes, From what perspective? Our perspective. Any righteous act you do flows from a heart and a nature that is corrupt. Therefore, even the most righteous action we commit is still tainted by sin. So from God's perspective, even our righteous deeds, I'm getting ready to quote from Isaiah, are like filthy rags. And that in Hebrew is not a good term. Right? Used, to, used of, a, of a rag refer, uh, that is used during a, a woman's menstrual cycle. Okay? Not a very nice picture. Okay? Kind of an ugly picture, right? It's, he's using a strong term in Isaiah. Why? Because that's what your righteous deeds look like. They're nothing but filthy rags. That's a strong term. We, we, we kind of just... We kind of just, nah, it's, it doesn't really, it's not really that strong. It's a strong term. Does that make sense? Something to be used as waste to dispose of. That's what your righteous deeds are. And you're like, well, wait a minute, but my, my deeds are good. Your deeds appear good to, to other people. Right? If I compare my deeds to some people sitting in Taylor County jail this morning, I may look pretty good. But all the good that I do still flows from a sinful heart. Therefore, it's still tainted by sin. So when God sees even my righteous acts, what does he see? Tainted. Very good. Sin. He sees it messed up. So this, this, lays, this puts us in a bad position, right? This is a bad situation. I'm depraved every which way. No, even the good I can, can possibly get out of me is still not good Enough. That's key. Let's, let's continue. We're almost out of time. Oh, I hate the clock, all right? Um, verse 11, there is none that understandeth. 
There is none that seeketh after God. Now, that comes directly from Psalm 14. And what is that going after again? The mind and the will. The mind and the will. They're all gone out of the way. They're together become unprofitable. There is none that doeth good. No, not one. All right, so what has he shown has been impacted by sin? Let's go through it again. The heart. What else? Actions. Will and mind. That's, that's pretty much all of us. Correct? Now, in the next verse, he's going to go to the throat. Right? If you see verse 13, their throat. He's going to go to their words and our mouth. But we're, we're going to have, stop there because we're out of time. So let's summarize this. And I'm going to drive this home as, as clear as I can to make this very clear. All right? I'm going to give some practical points here. You ready? Practical point number one. The Christian view of humanity is one that teaches that we are all depraved sinners by nature. This is the Christian view. Now, the non-Christian view says what? The people are basically good. This sets us up in a very, this is a radical approach and you've got to understand that when you're, when you're sometimes talking about things and you're talking to someone who's not a Christian or maybe even someone who claims to be a Christian but they just don't even understand the theology of total depravity, you're speaking a different language, right? For example, if you go to a, a, psychi- a psychiatrist or a psychologist, right? They're going to start from the perspective that, hey, the twins are basically good. And possibly what's wrong is their environment. If we, if we improve their environment, if we did this, we'll do that. Christianity says, no, the twins are totally depraved. They need salvation, sanctification. They need to grow spiritually. We need to address the spiritual issue. The Christian wants to address the spiritual issue. And that's why the world, whenever the world sees all the problems in culture, right? They want to address it through how? Politics. Or policy, or, or and sometimes Christians fall into that same trap, right? That we're going to try to we're going to try to address the problems through politics. Politics can't answer it because what's the problem? Depravity. Depravity is the problem. So that's the first th- issue. Number two, number two. So the first thing is we have a radical approach. Number two, and this is very key. Our understanding of salvation is directly related to our understanding of depravity. Our understanding of salvation is directly related to our understanding of salvation. And what would this teach us? Where would this lead us? This would lead us to a teaching of salvation that says what? You cannot save yourself, and God must do it for you. Now that means Romans 2.6 remember, it says we're justified or we're going to be judged according to our works. That's why some believe that what Paul was doing in Romans 2 was making a hypothetical argument. And I would agree it's a hypothetical argument if that same principle is not taught the rest of the Bible. That's why we could only come up to, yes, he will judge according to your works, and if he judges you according to your works, where are you going to end up? In hell, unless some other work is applied to your life, and that is the work of Christ, and that's how we, that's the best we could come up with, all right? So, but your view of salvation has to take into account Depravity. And there's so many churches, like, there, how many churches have a seeker-sensitive service? No one's seeking after God, so who are you inviting? 
Our seeker-friendly service. Who? There was just an article um, posted up by the Christian Post just the other day. I was going to do a recording about it. I haven't. That seekers are more likely to go to a United Methodist Church than other denominations. And I'm like, well, who are the seekers? Because no one is seeking after God. That's scripture. No one's seeking after God. So who are the seekers? Well, they may be seeking something, but what are they not seeking? God, what are they seeking? A little spirituality, community, friends. A lot of people pick churches because friendliness or, or they like the speaker, they like the music, they like the building. Well, that's great. Build a church filled with seekers seeking everything but God. Great. You may have 9,000 people and yeah, that's great for the pastor. He's going to get paid. Everything's going to be wonderful. And you look great. You look successful. But what happens when all 9,000 people die and enter into eternity? If they weren't seeking God and God didn't seek them, they're going to die and go to hell. We don't seek God. God has to seek us. There are no seekers. Make sure everybody, there's no seekers. There are seekers for purpose, for meaning, for understanding, but they're not seeking God because they're dead in their trespass and sin. We didn't even get to the dead part because Paul doesn't mention the dead part here. All right? So, how, depravity impacts every area of our life. And what are the key elements? What's number one? Understand that our perspective is radically different than the world. They say people are basically good. We say people are totally depraved. Basically good versus totally depraved. We're the weird, we sound weird to culture. But don't fall, and, and may, may, well, okay, that's number one. Number two, our understanding of salvation is dependent and built off our understanding of depravity. And then I'll say number three, because I've been mentioning this a lot in a lot of recordings. Because of this teaching, you cannot fall for the trap, as a Christian, you cannot fall for this trap of thinking the world's problems are going to be solved through politics, through a president, or through a party. The problems in culture are spiritual. They need the gospel. That's why Paul started his discussion in Romans 1 by reminding us what about the gospel? I am not ashamed of the gospel. The power of God unto salvation. The power to produce true meaningful change is the gospel. That, because the problems in culture are spiritual, they're not, and you can't just come along and fix them. That, that's just putting band-aids on problems. Now, yes, you're still going to have structure, you still have to have laws, but it's never going to change anything. Now, it doesn't mean we throw out law and we go for anarchy and say, well, we'll just give the gospel to everybody. Not saying that. They didn't even do that in the Bible. What we're saying is we don't look for the solution in politics, we look for the solution in the gospel. And the gospel says, hey, everyone here is a sinner, and guess what? You're so bad. What has impacted? Your heart, your mind, your actions, and your will. All right. We'll have to stop right there. Um, I wanted to finish the whole section, but I think you get... We had to do a little bit more review than I wanted, but um, I think that put it all together. Yes? All right. We got through all four questions, and I think we did that so nicely, and we also introduced depravity. So, all right. That, that, just understand, without, if you don't get this right, the rest of Paul's argument is not going to make any sense. All right, so we got to get this part right. All right, let's pray. Lord God, we come before you this morning. Lord, a somber reminder of what we are. And what we are is not very good. What we are is totally depraved. What we are is totally, totally sinful. What we are is completely unrighteous. And what we are are completely deserving of your judgment and condemnation. 
Our only hope is in you and the son, in your son whom you sent as a sacrifice for our sins. If we are not cling, clinging to him alone, then we have no hope of salvation. And I hope no one leaves here not understanding that. We ask this in Jesus' name. And God's people said,